are listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast, episode number six, Controversies in Grimdark. I am your host, Rob Matheny. And I am uh, writer and blogger, Philip Overby. And our guest today hails from Alaska, but now calls Michigan home. She currently holds a Master's of Science Information Systems Management and has worked both as an underwater photographer and an Arabic linguist, amongst others. When she's not taking care of dogs or horses or demon-possessed felines or children, she's writing epic fantasy. She just recently signed a three-book deal with Titan Books, with book one of the Song of the Sun Dragon Saga, currently slated for release in early 2016. She has a passion for storytelling and just recently had a birthday. The Grim Tidings podcast welcomes Deborah A. Wolf to the show. Debbie, thanks for joining us tonight. Yes, thanks for having me. Well, we have been Facebook contacts for uh, quite a few months now, and I'll tell you what, I am very uh, excited to have you on the program tonight. Uh, very excited for the uh, deal that you had with Titan Books. We're definitely going to dive into your writing process. We'll talk about your deal, and we're going to talk about controversies in Grimdark. There was recently a uh, rather controversial Game of Thrones episode that we dived into a little bit a couple weeks ago, but we wanted to, to get a little more into the details and kind of get a balanced perspective on things. So not only are we thrilled to have Debbie on the show tonight to, to talk epic fantasy and to talk writing, but we're going to talk about some serious, uh, some rather serious stuff too as well uh, when it comes to the art of writing fiction. So I'm, I'm very excited to have you on the show tonight, Debbie. It's a, it's a thrill and an honor. So thank you so much for just taking the time to be on with us tonight. One of the quotes on your Facebook page said, don't mess with fantasy writers, we know whether human flesh is white meat or red meat, and sweeten coffee with tears. Now, I think that quote kind of sums you up as a person and as a writer. Uh, where do you get your fiery personality from? Well, uh, that would probably be the Lafferty clan, my, my Irish relatives. I was born with flame red hair, um, and it's pretty much gone downhill ever since. Uh, I was raised in Alaska, too, uh, and people up there are very friendly barbarians, uh, barbarians nonetheless. So it was probably just a really bad combination, come to think of it. And I wanted to just dive into a little bit of kind of who you are as a writer, and maybe if, you could, if we could just talk a little bit about maybe your literary influences. Who, what, what authors have, uh, have influenced you in your writing, maybe uh, in your youth? Uh, who, who, who set the path for uh, Deborah A. Wolf uh, on this trajectory now that you know, has come to fruition in at least a trilogy of uh, three epic fantasy novels, if not many more? Uh, where, who, who influenced you along your path? Well, um, I think the first time I ever picked up a book... Uh, was probably one of the Grimm Brothers books were related to the Grimm Brothers and my mom was um, adamant about reading me dark fairy tales and not, you know, Dick and Jane. So I read a lot of dark fairy tales as a youngster and of course Tolkien, I think I started reading Tolkien when I was six or seven and just I've always loved fantasy. I've read literary fiction, I've read pretty much anything that can't outrun me, cereal boxes, you name it, but Fantasy has always been my my great love. When I was, I guess, a younger adult, I read a lot of uh, Catherine Kickhair. Recently, I, I'm in love with Neil Gaiman, of course, Robin ha uh, Hobb. Joe Abercrombie, I've come to late and love his writing. I just love to read Joe Abercrombie. When he does a battle scene, 
I'll sit there and my coffee will get cold and my breakfast will go uneaten and I'm not even entirely sure that I breathe. Then there's Pat Rothfuss. Of course, his prose is so beautiful. It'll bring tears to your eyes even if he's just writing about leaves. And Mark Lawrence um, with his wonderful dark worlds. You can really tell a lot of truth, I think, with fantasy. You can really cut to the heart of a matter without worrying about depicting the world as it is. You can show the world as it could be or as it should be or as it should not be. And when you're doing that, you can tell the bones of the truth. And let's talk about the Song of the Sun Dragon Saga. Now, this is your currently slated for three books um, in the series. You did sign with Titan. We're going to talk about that for sure. But can you just give us maybe a little preview? Tell us about this world that you've created. And for those who haven't uh, had the pleasure of meeting you yet, uh, give us just a preview of of this world you've you've created and uh, what we can expect from uh, this story world. I've sold the rights to the first three books to Titan Books in the UK. Um, I'm very excited about that. I'm very happy to have a UK publisher because I figure I can get away with more weird stuff than I might be able to with a US publisher. Um, Every time I wonder, is this too weird for my book? I think Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, I'm good. (laughs) Titan does wonderful covers. I've, I've already crept through a lot of their websites, so... Um, I'm, I, like I said, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it and looking forward to what they come up with for my books. The, the contract is still being bounced back and forth, so I haven't spoken with my uh, brand new editor a whole bunch yet, but they seem to be pretty excited over there, which, which is fantastic. Uh, and, and about the saga, sold the first three books. It's going to be at least six. I've projected six books in the saga. And they're pretty good-sized books. If you drop them on your foot, you'll definitely feel it. And at the very least, you can use them as a melee weapon. (laughs) It's set in an area like the Nile River and then up to the north, uh, the Anatolian Plateau, and even um, Indochina and um, the Sahara Desert. I I love fantasy that's set in in a medieval setting, but I wanted to do something different. And since I had some training in the army as an Arabic linguist, I love the languages. Um, I love Aramaic languages and the feel of them and the idea of the hot desert. Maybe that's just because I grew up in Alaska. (laughs) But my my world is, is pretty harsh. It's a very hot, very dry place with a lot of beauty, a lot of danger. Humans are only up about a third of the way down from the top of the food chain, so there's a lot of big, bad, nasty things that are happy to eat you and spit you out again. Um, And some of those things are the characters in my book. Actually, my very favorite character is a cannibalistic shaman. Uh, My second favorite character is her daughter, who quite often laments the fact that her mother is a cannibalistic shaman and her father is the dragon king, and um, so she'll probably never get laid. (laughs) (laughs) Some people like that kind of stuff, maybe. <laughs> well, it's, I, I play with tropes a lot. Um, in fantasy, we see a lot of the desert cultures portrayed as sexually restrictive. Uh, you know, the women are dressed head to toe in like a burqa, and it's a patriarchal society. So I've, I've taken some of the expectations and turned them inside out when I could. It's a matriarchal society in the desert, they're relatively sexually permissive and um, unusual in American fantasy. People aren't 
punished or beheaded or come to a bad end if they, you know, have sex and enjoy it. There's a lot of blood and guts. There's a lot of tropey stuff. I mean, I have a red-headed barbarian rides around on her pony in the desert, but I do a lot of I do a lot of really weird stuff too. Um, and and the critters in my book, I have great fun with. I, I grew up on wildlife refuges. So most of these strange and carnivorous beasts in my book will have an entire life cycle written down somewhere. That's really cool. Like that's that's one thing I've sort of uh, talked about with grim dark. In general, it tends to be more of uh, a human human element uh, more often. And uh, I'm always excited when I hear someone's doing like dark fantasy stuff with lots of monsters and stuff in it. You said some of the monsters actually play roles as, you know, central characters. Could you could you maybe talk about that a little bit more? One of my favorite monsters, and they don't come out a lot yet in the first book, but I have these terrible spiders. I mean, when when I would sat down, I I thought a lot about I think way too much about writing, quite frankly. <laughs> and I thought it seems to me one of the base human emotions is fear. When we read a book, we want, we're expecting tension to build and build and build, and then you get the release of tension, and then you get a little rush of adrenaline and serotonin and the happy things, because we read this thing and we thought we were being chased by a monster, and we survived, yay! Um, So I thought, in order to get that tension, I wanted to make the worst most horrible monster I could. I, I just wanted to go very Stephen King with my monsters. And it seemed to me that everybody I know is afraid of spiders. You know, when I find a spider in the house, I, I'm okay with it. I, I usually move it outside if it's, you know, big enough to start flashing gang signs at me and teach sit and stay, I'll move it. But I was outside gardening last year, and I lifted something up, and this black widow crawled out from under it, and her body was about as big as the pad of my thumb. And I channeled my inner city girl. I mean, I was running around and screaming like a little boy, and my children got a huge kick out of it. And that made me realize there is something that even I am afraid of. If it gets big enough and nasty enough, I'm afraid of spiders. Um, And I know that if I post horrible spider pictures on my Facebook page, everybody hates me. So I figured that works. (laughs) My my Facebook Facebook is my guinea pig um, farm. (laughs) Um, so I created these spiders that would have Pennywise the Clown wetting his pantaloons. I didn't want them to be the size of a house because I think if you make it too big and bad, it's to me like a, a Dean Koontz villain. They're so bad that he kind of loses me. You know, it's like, oh, this guy has murdered everybody he ever met, including his mother, and burned down the house when he was three. And I'm like, right, okay, I'm not scared of this guy. It's, just, it's a cartoon character. So I made my spiders about the size of a German Shepherd because a spider the size of a German Shepherd is really a terrible thing to contemplate. And then I thought, well, and of course they'd be intelligent, like more than human intelligence, and they'd have their own culture and their own magic system. And then I thought, well, maybe they're cyborg spiders. And I I get a kick out of the ancient aliens thing, you know, where people think that aliens came down from, I don't know, Mars probably, and helped everybody build pyramids because evidently pyramids are a thing on Mars. So these spiders are remnants of an ancient civilization doing some geological surveys because that's funny. They're kind of like <laughs> Mars rover spiders with 
cyborg abilities and nanotechnology, and I don't get into any of this in my book at all because my people are in the Bronze Age and they would have no idea what nanotechnology is. But we do. We have German shepherd size spiders. Uh, they're cyborgs. They're AI that has gone off the chart, and they can replicate themselves. Um, they also infect their victims with venom that has nanobots in it, so they can, once they've bitten you, they can control you. And they farm people as a food source. So I figured that is the most horrible thing I can think of, and I get goosebumps when I just think about them. Wow, that's... <laughs> so that's my monster. That sounds really, really, really fucking awesome. I'll oh, they're horrible. They turn people into zombies, and they're just gross. Yeah, at, at home I have uh, I have four small children, so usually the rule with spiders is kill them with fire. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, it definitely sounds uh, sounds frightening. Now you you mentioned the uh, the desert feel. Now now the the book um, Throne of the Crescent Moon by Saladin Ahmed comes mm-hmm. to mind. With oh, uh, I love his book. I think I. I read his book about halfway through my own, so maybe reinforced how much I love fantasy in a desert setting. Um, and, and the same, I would say the same with Guy Gabriel Kay. Um, I, I've recently read his uh, Lions of El Rasan, and I love that book so much. It was like the Iliad to me. I mean, it was that big and wonderful. I haven't really read a lot of what I would consider to be really good desert fiction, a lot of it I've seen is, is really tropey and with a very shallow idea of what cultures might be in the Middle East. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping to write the kind of book that I want to read. Um, again, with a huge nod to Salon Ahmed because I cried at the end of his book um, just because it was so beautiful. And to, again, Guy Gabriel Kay. A couple of people told me that my writing was a bit reminiscent of his, and then I went and read his stuff, and I'm like, I am not worthy. Talk about imposter syndrome. Oh, my goodness. I'm not there yet, but wonderful stuff. I did, I did want some milieu and, and cultures that are not the usual fare in fantasy, though, because we have so many neat cultures in the world right now and in history and stories in ancient Rome and the Mayan ruins and stuff that doesn't get used enough. And I just love to drag it all in and, and add nanotechnology and giant spiders and make everybody's life hell. I, I sat down and read The Lions of El Rasan because several people actually had, had told me that my writing reminded them of his. And I wanted to wait until my first book was finished before I read it because I don't like somebody else's voice really seeping into my story. And then I just sat down and read it in one go and sat there for a while staring out the window like, wow. I, I don't think I'm there yet. I really don't. But, I, I mean, the comparison is flattering beyond words. I just wanted to say that I'm a fan, and uh, I have had privy to reading uh, the two prologues that start off uh, book one. Um, and anytime I read any of your prose, I am immediately taken away to whatever story world that is. I think it's beautifully written, and I think the the K reference is is, is a good one. Um, and uh, another reason why I'm just excited to have you on the show is because I think uh, we're kind of kind of at the seat of watching you kind of take off into the stratosphere, and I'm I'm really excited for uh, for the uh, release of uh, your your trilogy at least at this point and. Uh, 
I just can't say enough good things about it. Rothfuss also comes to mind for me, at least. But, but let's talk two prologues. Some people are like, no prologue in my book whatsoever. <laughs> but you right. went and said, fuck it, I'm going to write two prologues. Yep, I am <laughs> writing two prologues, exactly, because <laughs> nobody does that. <laughs> <laughs> Who does that? What kind, of a, what kind of a dork writes two prologues for fantasy? So I did it. You did it well. Uh, I, I read them both, and uh, and I'm, I'm excited. I, I I already see the elements of of magic and the desert, and I see some hints of some pretty serious baddies, some, some bad villains um, in the works too. So I'm I'm already very engaged, and I can't wait to to read this uh, novel when it finally drops uh, from Titan. Um, let's talk about your your book deal a little bit. You got an agent. You got a deal with Titan. Uh, tell us walk us along the process of how you you landed that agent and uh, how you came in contact with Titan. Well, the whole thing it, it really hasn't hit me yet. You know, I'm trying to pull a, a rowling over here with the full understanding that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to end up with castles in Scotland. But I was I was laid off from a pretty good job in this area uh, a few years ago when the economy pulled a Titanic. Um, and the economy in this area is just awful. I moved here about 20 years ago, and the wages here are the same as they were then. But price of living has tripled or quadrupled. So I lost my job. I went back to, I was, of course, hugely pregnant at the time, too, because I had an addendum child. Um, <laughs> went back to school and got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree at the same time, because who does that? I do that. <laughs> <laughs> the same person who writes two prologues in a fantasy. <laughs> they said, don't get a bachelor's and a master's at the same time. So I said, I have to do this thing. Um, I am a barbarian. I will smash you with my warhammer. <laughs> and it almost killed me. I was up till four o'clock in the morning, most nights doing homework. And then I got wow. a four point just to be obnoxious. I, but then, you know, it was a midlife career change. Um, and right before I finished up my degrees, I went through a divorce, unfortunately, and now I share custody of a five-year-old um, in this area and can't move. So we've got a midlife career change in a terrible economy, uh, can't get a job at entry level because I've got a master's degree, and I can't get a job at a master's degree level because I don't have the work experience. It's a, it's a career change, and I went, what can I do? I, I can't throw myself off a cliff because there aren't any cliffs in this area. So I decided <laughs> I'll take an extra semester and try to get this book written that I've always wanted to write. And then I finished it. Who knew? And I said, well, okay, fine. I've got this book, so I guess I'll get an agent. It sounds a little trite, but from the time I started querying agents to the time I got the book deal was just about six months, which is crazy. I did not expect it to go like that. Well, so from from book finished to agent to deal, six month period. Six month period is crazy, um, but I did my due diligence ahead of time. Uh, if you're getting a master's degree online, you you get pretty good at at uh, researching things online. Uh, I take this writing thing pretty seriously, so I did my due diligence and researched the agents. Actually, ran across my agent. My agent is a rock star. Uh, Mark Gottlieb with uh, Trident Media Group. I saw his picture in Writer's Digest as a featured new agent. And, you know, he's younger than I am. And I thought, what, this, this, you know, 
he, he looked like a kid to me. Of course, I'm, I'm middle-aged now, so you all look like kids to me, but whatever. So I thought, you know, because I, 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 I always thought some crusty old dude sitting in a library somebody, somewhere would be my agent. So I, I'm looking at this kid, and then I started looking at his CV, and I thought, okay, uh, he basically grew up in the agency because his, his dad founded it. And then he went to Eaton, and he ran the publishing there, and he's done this, and he's done that, and he's brilliant and well-spoken. So um, so then I, I had another imposter syndrome moment, and I went ahead and queried him. They have a kind of an auto-query where you just put in a little short query letter in your um, in the system. And I refreshed my inbox, and he asked for the full manuscript, and I almost wet my pants because I just figured I'd never do anything. <laughs> Um, so I sent him the full manuscript, and that weekend he got hold of me and said he would like to discuss representation. And I, you know, I had a nice, calm, and collected conversation with him. And then uh, we hung up, and I lost my shit. Um, <laughs> you think you think the the spider was bad? I mean, I was completely incoherent. Called my best friend, who is my wonderful beta reader, and she didn't even know who it was because I was just babbling and shrieking, and it was a lot of fun. And then Mark um, sent out the manuscript. I got a lot of good feedback, a lot of good, solid feedback. And whenever I would get feedback from an editor that I thought was just spot on, I mean, you've got these top minds in the industry telling you this isn't quite right or that isn't quite right, and I was like, it's just really an honor when somebody takes the time to, you know, give you the feedback from their, their hard-earned experience. Uh, so I rewrote it a couple of times, you know, tweaked it here and there. And uh, when I found out Titan was interested, I got very excited. And then uh, very happily, we made the sale. So it, it was it was quick. But again, I did my due diligence and I, I followed the steps the way you're supposed to and it's a process. If you don't if you like to buck the system and buck the process, it's probably not the way you want to go as far as publishing. Very good. And where are you at right now in the process? I, so you finished book one? Uh, yes, I've finished book one, although um, an editor that I very much admire uh, right before we made the deal with Titan uh, had given me about a page and a half of this is what I would do to change the story type advice. And it was just so spot on and concise. I mean, here's somebody with 30 years in the industry going this, 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 and this. And all these things that kind of bugged me were just, it was just like somebody cleared out the pond and I could see the bottom. So I'm doing a little bit of revision. I'm adding a few chapters to an already large manuscripts, so I'm just going to pretend that I'm giving them extra material and not look at the size of my word count at this point. It's making the story a lot stronger, though, so I'm pretty excited about it. I, I should be done with rewrites in, I like to say, two weeks, but that's kind of like saying this is going to be a six-book series. Professional liar and all that. It'll be done in two weeks, and uh, the, the, contract is, the contract is popping back and forth between uh, the agency and the publisher right now. So they tell me that will be done in two weeks, too. And I figure we're both lying, but there you go. What's your word count up to at this point, if you wouldn't mind? Uh, giving us a well, it's in the 170 range-ish. Okay. Is anything for book two or book three written out yet? Little snippets or scenes or anything? Or are you just at book one at this point? Well, I've got um, outlines. I've got an extensive outline for book two. And I've got the first, I think, six chapters finished. I don't think I have to change much of those. 
Uh, book one is very heavy on the stories of Hafsa Azena, uh, who is my middle-aged cannibal, kind of like a soccer mom, only not, <laughs> and her daughter, Suwima. Uh, book two, um, I, I have... I have a crazy number of POV characters because I looked at, you know, I looked at Game of Thrones and I thought he starts out with eight POV characters. Um, who does that, right? So I'm, I've got nine. <laughs> um, they might not all make it to the end of the book, so I figured you just don't count the ones that don't live, right? So I have the same number of characters as Martin. <laughs> you just don't count the ones that don't live. They don't, you know, they're not really there. They're just background noise. So I have an unwieldy number of characters and what I like to call a fucktillion subplots. Um, <laughs> it's a huge balancing act. It's just crazy. Don't do this at home. Whatever you do, your first book, don't do this. Don't do what I've done. Don't do, okay, 11 POV characters, but like I said, they don't all live, so it doesn't count. And two prologues and oh my goodness, I'm crazy. But I love it. It's a lot of fun kind of segue into more about dark fiction uh you know you have you know a very violent world it seems like and a lot of you know i imagine there's lots of bloodshed and lots of sort of horrible things happening oh yes people uh, get discombobulated on a regular basis yeah when you have like you know german shepherd cyborg spiders running around then you know someone's (laughs) gonna get maimed right um so I was curious uh, with as far as dark fiction, are there any things that you feel like happen too much in sort of grim dark fiction, or or it's like overplayed, or something that maybe becomes repetitive, and then you know if people are just getting you know cut in half like every scene, or or if if certain things are happening in a repetitive nature, are there are there any are there any kind of things that you're just kind of sick of seeing in in fiction, or or maybe just in general with media and stuff like that? Well, now that you mention it, yes, um, I have a a personal and uh, topical uh, pet peeve. It's it's starting to get to me the um the whole rape trope or multiple tropes, actually, in the genre. Um, and it's not just in, in grimdark fantasy, but fantasy across the board. It's gotten to the point where I think Chuck Wendig said it's, it's like wallpaper. It's like the rape isn't even there to show a turning point in, a, in the victim's life. It's there because, basically because a man and a woman were in the same room together in the story, and he was the one in power. Um, which it, it bugs the heck out of me for a variety of reasons. And I'm not saying rape should be never written about. I am very much against book burnings and banning things and not talking about things. But when it comes to this particular type of violence, it really behooves us as writers to put more thought into our stories and into our character stories and their lives and the lives of our audience because fiction, popular fiction, is not created or enjoyed in a vacuum. It's it's a two-way street. You're writing something and it affects your audience and your audience affects your writing. So we're, we're creating this atmosphere where rape has become 
normalized. It has become expected. Uh, you expect somebody in fantasy to get on a horse and ride the horse. You expect somebody in fantasy to have a sword or an axe. And you expect somebody in fantasy to get raped. It's gotten to the point where I've heard a lot of people say they were surprised in uh, the show The Game of Thrones, which has become a, a huge part of popular culture, especially among us geeks. They were surprised that the Hound, when he had Sansa in his power, he didn't rape her. And then you have to wonder, what does this say about our culture? What does this say about our writers? That we expect a male character, no matter who he is, to rape a female character just because she's there and just because he's there. Like, we're, we're saying all men are rapists, and we're saying all women are victims. And that's, that's it's not true. Uh, we've, we, we've come to accept it. Um, we've come to use rape to show man pain. Like the episode where Sansa was raped fairly recently. I'm sure everybody's heard about that because the internet kind of melted when that happened. But Sansa's rape wasn't even about her in that particular scene. It was about uh, the man pain of Theon Greyjoy. And I have been tired of man pain for so long, for so very long. It's like we don't allow males in our heads, not just in fiction and not just when we write about it, but in our minds, we don't allow a male to show emotion or sadness or motivation unless there is a female in his life that is in danger or has been hurt. It's like steely man of steely madness with a heart of steel and walls built up around his personality walks around with steely eyes and a stone face until his mother slash wife slash girlfriend slash daughter is raped slash killed, at which point he might be allowed to shed a single tear. Probably not, but he might. It might be okay. He usually just clenches his jaw about it, and then he sets off on a mission of revenge. And that's really shortchanging men in fiction and, and the way we represent them. And then it marginalizes the victim. I mean, it makes the, the pain of, of real people into nothing more than, like I said, wallpaper. And, you know, as as writers, we can do better. And if we can't do better, then... Maybe we should just not look for an agent until we've got a couple more tools in our toolbox because we're just trying to fix every car out there with one sad little wrench and we need more tools. In your opinion, uh, Deborah, how do you think we got here? Like I said, it, it's a give and take between the people who create entertainment and the people who enjoy entertainment. And, and a lot of the people who enjoy entertainment, like me, are people who create entertainment. So... When your life experience has been narrowed down, like a lot of people's life experiences have, people don't go out and have adventures as much as they used to. You know, adventures a lot of times now consist of reading a lot of books about other people's adventures, and those other people may or may not be real people, watching a lot of television, and then sitting down and writing a story based on what you've watched and what you've read about instead of what you've experienced and what you've done. So I think we've bought into a bunch of fallacies as truth. You know, we bought into the idea that fantasy is in a medieval setting and that the medieval setting was very much patriarchal and very rapey. 
I mean, you've heard a lot of arguments for this, saying, oh, well, historical accuracy, when really, in a fictional world, whatever you create is the truth. You're creating that world. It's not like we're writing about Caesar's Rome. We're writing about Westeros, which is a fictional world. And if, if the author writes a world in which rape is the norm, that's the author's choice, whether it's conscious or unconscious. I think it's a lot of time unconscious. Um, I find myself, when I'm writing, I, I have a scene actually in which uh, a young man is sexually harassed by a group of women. And I wrote that scene on purpose because I, I have a, a son myself, he's a young man, and he's mentioned to me that you know people don't take it seriously if, if a man is assaulted. It, it, he gets mocked and told, well, that doesn't happen, or you must have enjoyed it, or it's it's minimized. Um, even it's it's minimized just just as a a female's rape is is minimized and, and shrugged aside a lot of times. And it's not something we're we're used to seeing. When I wrote that scene, it was very uncomfortable. It didn't feel I was way outside my comfort zone writing it. And I think that had I been writing about a female in the situation where a, a group of men was in, were holding the power over her, it would have felt more normal and more real to me. Um, and I think that's just because so much of what we've read becomes internalized. And I think that's one of the reasons it's so important for us to think about what we're writing, because we're not writing it just for ourselves to hang on our wall and look at. We're hanging it hanging it out there for the whole world to look at and for our audience to internalize and to pass that along as well. And again, Chuck Wendell's post about um, uh, about uh, de your defense of that rape scene in Game of Thrones makes you sound kind of ugly. He says you're just taking the can and kicking it down the road instead of thinking about why am I kicking this can down the road and pick it up and, wow, well, that's an ugly can, it's full of rape. Why am I... Why am I continuing with this fallacy? Why am I continuing to say this is normal and this is what happens? I, I just think that people haven't really thought about it and discussed it a lot. And it's hard to talk about without dropping the F-bomb and getting all ticked off and kicking people in the face. You know, it, it's hard to have a rational discussion about something that's such an emotional thing. Um, but I think it's a very important discussion for us to have. I think it's hard for people to, to have a discussion about something that uh, maybe they have no personal experience with it, so they don't, they can't relate with it the same way, or um, or they don't understand why some people get upset about it. They 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 may say it's because they're oversensitive or whatever the case may be. But right, um, I tend to think kind of along the same line that we have to be aware as writers you know, what we're putting out there. And one of my one of my feelings is that what happened after this scene happened with Ramsey and Sansa is that everyone was angry at the show. Whereas with Joffrey, when he did all this horrible shit, everyone hated Joffrey. They didn't hate the show. Mm -hmm. So I think when you start having people angry at the actual show instead of angry at the character, which was which was the intention, I think, was to make people hate Ramsey Snow more and him be like the new Joffrey or whatever. I think it kind of backfired because that's what happened, is people were angry at the show and not at the character. 
So that that's something as you know, creators, people have to be aware of that sometimes when you put certain things in your stories, uh, you may be alienating a huge segment of your audience by doing something like that. So um, it's something I've become more aware of as I've gotten older. When I was younger, I would have all sorts of horrible shit in my stories. You know, I'd have, you know, spider webs made of intestines and all this kind of like gross, gross out stuff. And, you know, people, people would just say, you know, you're just writing stuff to shock people. And I was. When I was younger, I would just write stuff to shock people. So now I think more about, like, am I trying to shock people by writing this? Or, or am I trying to entertain them? Or am I trying to make them think about something? So I, I'm just curious what the show creators thought they were accomplishing by having this particular scene happen. Uh, was it to make Ramsey Snow more hated? Or was it to make Theon have an emotional reaction? Or was it to make Sansa this more uh, damaged character or whatever whatever the case may be. When we start out, we all write absolute shit. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Mary Sue's and Mary Jane's and every third character gets raped, but there's, you know, there's no excuse when you get to a certain point and a certain level and 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 when your audience gets to a certain size too. I mean, if if you're writing for your Aunt Tessie and you write crap then, you know, give yourself a little leeway. But if you're writing for Game of Thrones, you know, oh, my God, something besides rape, anything, you know, cut off another wiener or something. Holy crap. <laughs> and and it's not just, and it wasn't just that scene. I don't think it was the, it was like raining rape. Like, really? Another one? It, 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 like, I, I know I heard a lot of people saying, well, but Theon got his, dick lopped off and where's your outrage okay well um, besides the fact that Theon kind of deserved to have his dick lopped off he was a jerk um, it wasn't just that I mean sure it was it was a really horrible thing that he got his dick lopped off but if they had also lopped off the wieners of Ned and you know Highwind and Sam and Jon Snow and everybody else you guys would be like oh my god do you hate men do you hate wieners what is this? Is this game of wiener lopping? You know, if there was as many wiener loppings as, as there are rapes in the show, it would start feeling a little overdone. So why doesn't it feel that overdone when it's a rape? Because that's what we're expecting. That's what we're used to. You know, that's why we're surprised when the hound doesn't rape Sansa. It's like, well, why wouldn't you? She, you're a guy. She's a girl. That's what happens in fantasy. Don't you read? And that's why I like giant spiders, because you're not expecting them. I don't like to second guess another artist's work and I don't like to say you should do this or you should do that because then everybody would be writing the stories that I write you know and Rice wouldn't be out there writing about Lestat because I'd be like oh my god don't write about vampires I think it was it, it may actually help in the long run uh, that there was such a backlash and such a huge conversation about the issue I, I think a lot of people hopefully I would hope that a lot of people especially new writers who hadn't really put the thought into why they were writing this particular type of, of sexual violence into their story, you know, maybe they'll read some of the posts and some of the conversation around it and say, huh, maybe one of my female characters shouldn't get raped, just mix things up a little bit. It's, it's not what I would have written, and I personally think that the show has gotten just kind of over-the-top rapey, and I've lost interest. I, I've, I've gone from 100% interest to probably, I don't know, 70% interest. I'll still watch it, but 
but now if it's a choice between Game of Thrones and Vikings, I'll watch Vikings. I love those female characters. It, it's fantastic. The, the women in that show, the women in Vikings, get to play in the sandbox. You get to play with all the toys. You get to be... When you're a kid and you watch Spider-Man, you want to be Spider-Man, right? You want to go swinging around the city and shooting bad guys with your web, and you run around the playground pretending to be Spider-Man. And as adults who pretend to be adults... We watch Game of Thrones, and we want to do the same thing. And it doesn't matter whether you sit to pee or stand to pee. You want to watch the show, and you want to be the characters. Nobody wants to be Sansa. Arya is pretty cool. Nobody wants to be Sansa. You know, nobody really wants to be most of the female characters in that show. And then I watch Vikings, and I'm like, yeah, I want to pick up an axe and whack somebody's head off. That's awesome. That's fun. You know, I want to be that kind of superhero. And really, you know, since... At least 50% of your paying audience is female. Let us into the sandbox. Let us pick up a Tonka truck and smack somebody over the head with us. You know, let us play too. So I think uh, as far as like certain elements of fiction, I'm kind of in the same realm as like if a writer does write a rape scene, I'm assuming there's a reason for it or that they're trying to, to accomplish some kind of thing with their character or their plot or whatever. But as you said, when it's done repeatedly like that, it kind of trivializes and doesn't really make it effective in any storytelling aspect. So I think the same kind of thing happens when you have characters that are, you know, killed the same way. Or or as you said, like if everyone was getting their wieners chopped off, then it would be (laughs) people would be like, well, what the fuck? Like no one has a wiener on this show anymore. Right. Then. I think it is. I think it is for me as well. More of a repetitive thing. It, it's not so much like if if a, if a writer does put a rape scene in a story. I think if it has a very important message or something behind it, then I'm not I'm not going to be adverse to it or or whatever. Um, I prefer not to read stuff like that if possible. That's just my personal preference. But I do think if people are going to put these kind of things that obviously make people uncomfortable then they should maybe think about, like, okay, what is this going to do for my story or what is this going to do to my audience when they read it? Right. Um, so I'm, I'm not necessarily, like, don't put this in your story, but, yeah, like, if it's if it's done so many times. I mean, that, that's the thing with Joffrey as a character that I thought was so intriguing, like, the, 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 the layers and layers and la- layers of this guy's shittiness were so remarkable that, I mean, he did all sorts of horrible shit to people on the show, and he was crea- it was creatively done, and when the books also. So I think that's why he he appealed to so many people as a villain because he was just so shitty on so many different levels. It's kind of like you don't want your characters to become cartoonish or to become a caricature or whatever. So exactly, and then you lose your audience, and what's the fun in that? Because you're right, Joffrey was an absolute punk. You just wanted to bitch slap him until your hand went numb. And then when he died, it was awesome. I mean, you just stood up and cheered. Yay, Joffrey's dead. And it was really (laughs) a horrible way to go. And let's rewind that and watch it again. You know, and at this point, it's like, oh, my God, another rape. Is there any popcorn? (laughs) So then you have a cannibal shaman middle-aged woman for your... Mm -hmm protagonist for your novel is that correct i I do i do and and actually it's it's pretty funny because um 
my older kids have read my book and they all say she's she's out of all my characters she's the most like me and that was maybe a little disconcerting <laughs> maybe not surprising so the, but disconcerting the cannibal part the cannibal part or the shaman part or which part <laughs> right well she's she's kind of she's kind of a tough nut to crack i wouldn't want to piss her off she is definitely she's definitely got some issues she's she's got some ptsd and some issues and doesn't have a whole lot of uh, sense of humor left um but she's she's interesting i i try to i try to make complex characters and not uh, like I said, with, with Dean Koontz characters now, I used to love Dean Koontz. Certainly not casting any aspersions on him as a writer. His I love his Golden Retrievers. Whenever he writes about Golden Retrievers, it's wonderful. But his villains lose me personally. They're just so bad. They're like raping people from the time they're four years old and burning down the house and killing their mothers and you know tying nuns to cactuses and stuff. Um, I I try to make my humans more human and they're I definitely don't have much in the way of villains and heroes everybody in my book screws up sometimes when you fuck up you you can't fix it sometimes it just really messes up your life and everybody else's life because that's what happens uh even my really bad villain the nightmare man he's that bad because he hasn't been able to sleep for a thousand years and he can't die. He can't sleep and he can't die. And yes, I did think him up at four o'clock in the morning when I was having a round of insomnia. Because I thought a thousand years of this and I would be willing to tear the world apart with my bare hands just to make it stop. So, yeah, I mean, he does some bad shit. But he does some bad shit because, you know, he hasn't been asleep for a thousand years and he can't die. And that would really suck. My heroes are pretty much not heroes. Everybody's kind of in it for themselves. Some of the people are, are better human beings than others and have a little more altruism in their chemical makeup. And some of them just don't give a fuck about anybody else because you get that in real life. Oh, and my giant saber-toothed cats are cats. They are not sidekicks or fun things to have around all the time. They're not in it to help their human companions do whatever their human companions want to do because cats aren't like that. So you may have a giant cat as a companion and the damn thing might be trying to trip you in the middle of the night and kill you and throw up where you can step on it because that's what cats do. And they've got something going on. I don't even know what they're up to yet. So you can't put little cute hats on them and take selfies or anything? No, no, that would, that would be contraindicated. <laughs> so with this whole series, with the, um, <clears throat> the Song of the Sun Dragon saga, after all is said and done, when all six books are, are published in, in the hands of readers across the globe, uh, what, at the end of the day, what would you like your readers to take away from the story that you're telling? I would like them to, well, of course, I have, I have a theme. I have a couple of themes. Okay, I have a fucktillion themes. <laughs> I'd like them to sit back and, you know, I, I want them to finish a series at like four in the morning. And they've got to work the next day. You know, they've got to be up in two hours and they're going to be dragging their ass at work looking miserable and their boss is going to be yelling at them. And they're just going to be like, wow, that was really different. And that was a fun ride. And wow, dragons that, you know, see life on planets and giant spiders and bone lords and I want them to you know have a really great adventure and have a really great time and probably be glad they don't live there themselves because giant spider's eggs are a delicacy that's disgusting 
Well, I mean, just hearing hearing you talk about your story, it already kind of evokes a lot of uh, images and stuff. And I think that's from reading your your introduction. Uh, you know, it's very visual. Everything's very visual, and and you, you know, I, I can feel the almost feel the heat of the desert and these kind of things. So, I think it's going to be a big, a pretty big deal. So, I'm looking forward to seeing once it's released and and um, definitely looking forward to reading the rest of it. That is so cool to even hear. I mean, to think that other people that I've never met will pick up my book and, and join me in this crazy freaking adventure and just have a blast. Um, that's, that's like the best ever. That is the best ever. I've been going through your blog posts, too, and it looks like you usually close with a phrase I'm not familiar with. You say, you usually uh, write... Jai to Y, and then you said Jai to I was a linguist, so I, I have four languages in my book. And yes, I read the manuscript out loud to myself, and yes, I have practiced all four different accents because I'm crazy. Um, Jai to I is uh, a Sindhanese saying. They don't have so much a concept of goodbye. Jai to I means more like until I see you again. So it's, it's more like aloha. Um, it just has a different feel to it. It's, so it's not like, goodbye, I'm not going to see you again. It's, I won't be seeing you again for a while, but but we will meet again. And and I like that. I like that, too. And we are definitely going to meet again once uh, book one, The Heart of uh, Atulon, comes out. We would be glad to have you back on the show to talk about it uh, a little bit more and promote it and, uh, and get the word out uh, to our listeners for sure. It sounds like an exciting title, definitely. Well, thank you very much. I, I've enjoyed being here. Deborah A. Wolf, where can people find out more about you online? You can look me up, www.deborahawolf.com, because the domain name was still available at the time, so yay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've got, some, I've got a little bit of stuff on there. Um, I've got a little bit of a blog going. I've got some stuff about uh, the Song of the Sun Dragon, uh, my saga, and a couple of projected works, too. I, I'm, I'm projecting an urban fantasy that I'll probably be writing the first book of next year. And on DeborahAWolf.com, you can also look me up on Facebook. Very good. Deborah A. Wolf has been our guest here on the Grim Tidings podcast. The Heart of Atualon is book one in the Song of the Sun Dragon Saga. Debbie, thanks so much for hanging out with us tonight. Thank you very much for having me, guys. It's been it's been a great time. Uh, jai to Y. And this, this was your first... <laughs> jai to Y. This was your first podcast ever, too. So podcast history here today with Deborah Wolf on the Grim Tags podcast. So that's exciting. And I didn't and even uh, drop the F-bomb once. I am so proud. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jai to Y, Deborah. Thanks so much for hanging out. Uh, and uh, as far as the Grim Tidings podcast goes, uh, make sure you check us out on Facebook.com slash The Grim Tidings podcast. We're on Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction. Be sure to uh, let us know if you have any questions or comments or feedback for the show. Definitely appreciate everybody tuning in and listening. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. You've been listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. Until next time, stay grim, stay dark, stay true. We'll see you. Bye-bye.